2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn up and and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved. One of the words Peter loves to you, beloved. Those loved of God. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things, he writes, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, verse 17, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. So we're coming to the conclusion of this wonderful, somewhat overlooked book of the New Testament. Peter the Apostle is an eyewitness of the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's writing these letters to the churches in Asia Minor because false teachers has infiltrated the church, infiltrated their communities. And he tells us in chapter 2 that they were not only among the flock secretly, secretly introducing heresy, blaspheming God, but they were, they were actually in the church like a bunch of pimps looking to extort women sexually. Crazy as that sounds, that was going on in the church. Then again, you look around, maybe it's not so crazy. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 14, that these false teachers have eyes full of adultery. That means they're always looking for sexual for their own sexual sins. They're insatiable for sins, he says in verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Become apparent to us, particularly last week, as we looked at their, their lifestyle, that their lustful and boastful and arrogant lives were in part due to their false beliefs. We talked about that last week, about what you believe about God, what you believe about eternity, what you believe about His coming, affects the way we live. They were scoffing. They, they were claiming that ever since Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the Father, where has He been? Everything is as it was. Nothing has really changed. He has not really intervened. And, and, and this coming day of this terrible, dreadful day of the Lord, that which the Old Testament prophets spoke about, which the New Testament prophets spoke about, hasn't come. And therefore, if he's not coming, he has not judged, he is not going to judge, I might as well live my life pleasing myself, doing as I want. And quite honestly, that's true. If he's not coming back, there is no judgment. We're not going to be accountable. Might as well live as you please. And that kind of belief, that kind of false belief, 
is what the Bible calls worldliness and ungodliness. We think of that, I mentioned this before, we think of worldliness or ungodliness as those crazy people that, that shoot people, that rob banks. Yet the Bible tells us that worldliness really is a system of beliefs and thought where we treat things of this world as, as the only thing that matters. Like, what you see is what you get. That's all there is. That, that's worldliness. Ungodliness really has to do with not being so morally bad. You can actually be, be very morally good. But it has to do with neglecting God. It has to do with, with, with rejecting God. It has to do with not honoring God. Not submitting to God. So you could be a very moral person looking externally and yet have no place of God in your life. That's worldliness. That's ungodliness. No God, do as I please. Peter says in chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, that that argument is moot because Jesus is coming back. He reminds us of the basic elementary truths of Genesis 1. That God intervened. He spoke His creative word into being, uh, into, from nothing He created the heavens and the earth. That He intervened not only in creation, but He intervened at the flood in Noah's day. And since God has intervened and God is the creator God, there's no reason to believe He's not going to intervene again. He did not create the cosmos, set it in motion as deism teaches us, and, you know, He'll be back to visit maybe some other day. Doesn't really care about what's going on. Last week we said the day of the Lord is a reality. The day of judgment. It's a, it's a day Christ will return. He will judge the wicked. He will reign in righteousness. The day God will pour out His wrath on sin and judge the earth and all that is wrong will be made right. And last week we talked about, I just want to mention this as we move on. Last week I talked about how God can be a wrathful God who, who's angry towards sin and a loving God, a benevolent God who loves you. And where those two come together. So if you're thinking... Judgment, wrath, anger, but God is love and mercy and grace. Get the CD, download the sermon, don't want to go there, but God's love, God's wrath are not antithetical. They are one. That in which we love, we protect. And we get angry when someone harms it. So you get that sermon from last week. This week, we're talking about what's the implication when Jesus Christ comes, it's the day of the Lord. It's His day. He takes center stage. All that's broken will be healed. All that is wrong will be right. And because of that, the Bible says that God is long-suffering for that to take place because He's merciful. He doesn't want anyone to perish. It's not His wish that anyone to perish, but all to repent. And, and because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, because of God's patience, we are to live a certain way. That's really what this text is all about. That's really what Peter is concluding his letter with. So what we'll see is I just want to go back to verse 10. I know we talked about it last week, but I want to, I want to discuss what all those uh, verses mean about the dissolving of the earth and the fire and all that stuff. So we'll spend some time talking about the destruction. And then we'll look at the diligence and how we ought to live diligently, he says. We'll look at the deception that is still going on in the church that Peter wants to remind the church before he concludes his letter. And finally, we'll look at the determination of the last verse, which is just a wonderful, wonderful verse of Scripture. So that's where we're headed. Verse 10 again. Listen to the destruction. The day of the Lord is coming. God will come. But it will come, he says, like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth... And the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is the day of the Lord. Verse 12. 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. It's talking about the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of wrath, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13. But according to his promise, that's his promise, the heretics and the liars and the false teachers don't agree, but according to his promise, we, the people of God, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter is teaching us the very word that he heard Jesus teach. I also believe that Peter is also teaching what Paul had already wrote to the Thessalonica church. But Jesus said in Matthew 24 concerning that day, the angels don't know, the Son doesn't know, but the Father only. It'll be like the days of Noah when the Son of Man comes, when the the day of judgment comes. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, Jesus says, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, stay awake. Jesus talking. Stay awake, Matthew 24. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So no matter what the false teachers say that are, that are talking about this in, in the sense of what day, nobody knows. Not even Harold Camping. I know I made a shock to you, but he doesn't even know. But this, he says, know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let the house be broken in. Therefore, be ready. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter hears Jesus teaching that and now is teaching us the words of Jesus. Paul told the church of Thessalonica concerning the times and the seasons, he says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. See that, okay? Like a thief in the night. For you yourselves are fully aware he will come like a thief in the night People will say, where's the peace and security? And sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. So he's talking about coming in when, 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 when no one's ready for it and it will come like a thief in the night and no one will escape. That's what, Peter, that's what Paul is saying. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. See, it's one thing... It's one thing not to know the day, the time, and the hour. It's another thing to be surprised and not ready for it. It's one thing to say, you know what, I don't know. I don't know when. But there comes a day, and there will be a day, putting all of what he says together, that the physical world as we know it will be done away with. Now, this is not a science lesson, so we shouldn't push it too far. Whether it's, whether it's the, the work of God doing this or whether it's atomic or whatever. I've, I've read all kinds of different things. I don't know. And I don't really care. What I care about and what, I, what I'm sure about is that it's going to happen. He says the heavens will pass away with a roar. The word roar means a, a, a whistling of, a, of, a, of, a, of, of an arrow or the rushing wind. In the context, it's the crackling of a fire and destroying the heavens. He says uh, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The word heavenly bodies means elements. All that this, this earth and the cosmos is made of, whether, you know, he's talking about the sun, the moon, the, the, all the components of the universe and the planets, everything will be affected. There's no way to escape. So if you're in a rocket ship, if there's any astronauts here, and you're up in space, too bad, you're getting caught as well. That's what he's saying. 
And finally, he says, all the works will be done. They'll be exposed. I think the NIV has laid bare. Commentators say he either means uh, that, that the works of man will be exposed or, 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 the, or the, the, all the earth and what it's made of and, and it will be exposed. Okay, I, I think it means both. I think what Peter is saying, he said over and over again, is that when Christ returns, the hearts, the motives, Romans 2 says, will be laid bare. God's searching assessments of our motives will become evident to Him. There's no place to hide. It's time to pay the piper. It's time for those who live without Jesus as the mediator for their sin to stand accountable to God. In the context, though, in immediate context, he's talking about the physical earth as well. Turn with me if you can, and I don't usually do this, but I want to. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 8. I just, I just want to read very, very important passage of Scripture and talking about the, the, the new heavens and the new earth and, and, the, and the doing away of this one. Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Picking up verse 18. Now, remember we're talking about the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. The dissolving and the heating up and the doing away of the new heaven, of the heavens and the earth, and a new heavens and an earth coming, okay? That's, that's the context. And this is the context of Paul as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Connection between the obtaining the, the, the new heavens and new earth and the children of God. Verse 22, Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation, all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8 teaches us clearly that creation itself, the natural world, has been affected by the sin of mankind, by the fall of Adam and Eve, and the sin that has been brought because of that. That we are no longer living in this pristine and perfect created state, and it will continue to live, be this way until the end of the age. And here Paul, in Romans, assures that, that the consequences of human sin has affected creation, and that when God redeems man... When does away with sin, when he brings a new order, also will it come a new heaven and a new earth. That creation itself is groaning and waiting, just like if you're a child of God, you know. You know, as much as I see the wickedness of this world, I see the wickedness in me much greater. And the day I'm looking forward to is a day that I will not sin against my God. The day that I will not struggle with sin, that God will redeem me and do away with sin. And I long for that day. As much as I love my family, as much as I love seeing them, you know, graduate school and grow, as much as I love all that does not compare 
to the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. And, and that when the bondage of this earth and the corruption of this world will end and the cosmos will have a new heavens and a new earth, we ourselves will be redeemed and so will this place. That's why in verse 13 he says, but according to his promise, we're waiting. Not only we, but the world, the earth, the creation is groaning for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The phrase heaven and earth means the entire universe. The world... Uh, New, the, the new world, a renewed world, a material substance world being renewed. Greg Bial, who's a professor of Westminster Theological Seminary, says this about new heavens and new earth. He says, It is not merely ethical renovation, but transformation of the fundamental cosmic structure, including physical elements. Now, we're going to talk about this this summer. But the whole idea, and I mentioned this one other time a few, a few weeks ago, I think, the whole idea that when we die... We go to heaven to live there eternally, floating, spiritually floating people. Sometimes you see these fat bloated babies playing a harp in a diaper is not only not biblical, it's scary. (laughs) I love to smell the roses. I love to smell my meatballs cooking too. (laughs) I love hiking. I went to, uh, we were out west last year, and, and we went to Bryce Canyon. It was beautiful. What makes us think that that beauty, glory, the, our five senses could be taken from us, that we got this non-kind of floating, mystical, bloated thing like, that's not fun. That's not good. It's going to be better than now. I think as Dr. Keller said, we have five senses now, we might have a hundred in the new creation. Well, we are now... So what would be then is compared to a human being and a tomato, he says. Like, it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We have somehow, and I don't know how this happened, maybe it's just an American thing, I don't know. We have somehow bought into this mystic Eastern religion that teaches that we need to escape the material, because that's bad, that's Gnosticism, and somehow free us from the material world to be these spiritual kind of beings, this nirvana, this, this, this spiritual life. Even Mufasa tells Simba in The Lion King, everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. As king, you will need to understand that balance and respect all creatures because we are all connected in the great circle of life. No, not true. Nirvana, circle of life, Buddhism, circle of life. They worship around these circles. This reincarnation, this, we're just one together in this, this constant circular motion that Buddhists teach, or native Indians with the, with the medicine wheels and the dream catches, or, or the yantra circle that the Hindus worship, and this even Wiccan circle, the circle of life. No. No, no, no. Not true. Listen. Jesus rose from the grave and that is proof positive and clearly signals God's commitment to the renewed material world. It's not going to be cyclical. It's not the God of the cycle. We're not destined to keep the cycle going. We're looking for the transformation of the return of Christ. Paul and Peter were not teaching either annihilationism. I hear that from once in a while. He's not teaching that the world is going to be completely done away with. 
He's talking about transformation. The word dissolved in our text talks about something being torn apart, breaking to pieces. Even the word destruction, if you have your Bibles open in Second Peter again, the word destruction in verse 7 and the word perished in verse 6 is the same Greek word. So just as God destroyed the earth during Noah's day. He didn't really destroy it. He just changed it dramatically. When God comes back, the earth is going to be changed dramatically. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be recreated. Now, I can't get my head around that. But I know this. If God created the earth, pristine and perfect, He could do it again. And now we will live not floating in the clouds playing a harp or a flute. We're going to be on the new heavens and the new earth Physical bodies, like Jesus, walking through walls and eating fish. I don't know how that works. But I believe my Bible. And we got to be careful we don't buy into that spiritual... It's a material renewal. And that should change the way we respond to our community. Right? We're working toward justice because that's what justice is going to be. Perfect. It says the new heavens where righteousness dwells. We should care for the planet, not because we're hugging trees and worshiping Mother Earth, but we're doing it because God, our Creator, has given us something to care for. And we know what the end result will be, a complete transformation and renewal of all things. God will keep His His promise. The day of the Lord will come. It will be unexpected on a scale never before witnessed in the history of mankind. It's going to happen. The next section of Scripture, which you'll notice in verses 14 through the end of the chapter, is built around, if you're taking notes, you like to write in your Bible, I know I do, built around four imperatives, four commands, four instructions on how we ought to live because of the truth of the coming of Jesus. Four imperatives, I'll give them to you. Number one, verse 13, the diligence. Verse 13 and 14, okay? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people... Ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Okay? Holiness and godliness. That's verse 13. No, that's verse uh, 12. Where am I? Okay, we're waiting until we found in him without spotless blame. Verse 11. What I want to do is look at verse 11, look at verse 14. Since all these things, the end of time will come, what people you ought to be living in holiness and godliness, jump down to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. So this is, what, this is what Peter's saying. Because of the coming of Jesus, because everything will be exposed, because of the new heaven and the new earth that will be recreated and renewed, because of those things, be diligent. Verse 11, what sort of live in holiness and godliness? Verse 14, he says, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. So the end is coming, the world is going to end, and now we are to live a certain way. Now, what I'm about to say, take with balance, okay? It's good to study eschatology, the study of end times. It's good to try to look at the Scripture and see what God has to say about what's going to happen in the end. Revelation tells us that blessed is the man who reads that book. I get that. I do. But if you read the New Testament, all of what Jesus is saying and all of what the apostles are saying about the coming of Christ, what you will find in the New Testament is not so much that we are to go into our room and get all our charts, argue our position, 
that we are to try to figure this all out, you know, rifle through the newspaper, international news, and try to, to figure the, every single move everyone's doing so that we can actually pinpoint it when exactly he will return. That's not what the New Testament teaches us. There are many gifted Bible scholars, a lot smarter than me, that disagree with each other. Little reign of Christ for a thousand years? Well, it's figurative, some people say. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or pan-trib, it'll all pan out, pan out. You know what I mean? So everyone has differences. What we agree with here is you can have those differences as long as we all agree. Jesus comes back, kicks butt, and wins. And he renews the whole earth. Like, all that other stuff, it's good, go figure it out, you go, but I'm not arguing with you. I'm not looking at all your charts. I, all I know is when the Bible talks about end times, it has something to do with how I'm living today. Not in my closet drawing charts, but am I living a life pleasing to God? St. Augustine said this. He says, The quantifier regarding those who love the coming of the Lord is not those who affirm that it is very close, nor is it amongst those who determine that is far in the distance. But it is to be found in those who, whether it be near or far, wait it with all their hearts. How do you know? How do you know you're waiting with all your hearts? He says, be diligent. Be diligent. The purpose of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation. The purpose of, of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation. We're to live holy. Remember the word holy means separate from sin, devoted to God. Not separate from sinners, because then you have to kill yourself. Okay, Separate from sin, devoted to God. The word godliness has to do with worship. William Barclay says it's the attitude which gives God the place we ought to occupy in life and in thought and devotion. It's about worship. It's about treasuring Jesus, about worshiping Jesus. It's about confessing our sins, about turning from sin. It's about a life devoted to Jesus. The idea of reverence and awe towards God. Christians should live holy and godly lives, not because this world is not going to last, but because this world is going to be renewed. There's going to be a new world in its place. Not only to be separated and distinct from from the sinful lifestyle of these, these heretics, but in preparation for the next. Now, I've been given illustrations on what it means to live um, today in light of the future. Talked about the plane, talked about a couple of things. I got a new one for you. I know you're thanking me. You can thank me later. I got a new one for you. When you were in school, high school, college, wherever you were, there were two kinds of teachers. There was a teacher that gave you the whole syllabus, told you exactly what was due. Beginning. Test, quiz, midterm, final. Good, I got it. Here's the dates. Then there was those professors that said, you know what? Do your assignment. I'll decide when judgment day will be. You'll know when you walk into class. We won't tell you. I know which professor, what teacher, made you do your homework every night. The one you didn't know. whether You're going to walk in and see the pop test, right? You didn't know when the day of judgment was. You were ready. You were prepared. Well, Peter's saying, we don't know. We don't know. Don't be caught. Live holy. Live blameless. Doesn't mean perfect. It's not what he's saying. Anybody who reads the New Testament knows that we're going to be dealing with sin all our life. It means be repentive. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. We repent of our sin. We both sin, but we repent. And God causes us to repent. Right? And, And... We want to be in that day when we face Jesus. 
when we look at Him face to face, as Second Corinthians tells us, not for, not for judgment of our sins, that's already been done on the cross, but the day we give an account of our lives. We want to be in that place where our conscience is clear and we're not doing anything that we're ashamed of if He would return. It's like a single mom who had a daughter just wouldn't keep her room clean. And the youth, she told the youth pastor, and the youth pastor decided, you know what, I, I, I'll take care of that. He made an announcement to youth group. What we're going to do next week is I'm going to come to everybody's house, take a picture of everybody's bedroom, and compare it on Facebook. All of a sudden, she was cleaning her room that whole week. She was ready. Therefore, he says, verse 14, be diligent. Be found by him without spot or blemish. That word diligent is the same word he used in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with these virtues. Yes, faith is a gift, but supplement them, add to them these virtues. Same Greek word. Chapter 1, verse 10, Peter said, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and your choosing. It means to strive for something, to work towards something. It's not working salvation, it is working out our salvation. The word to be found is in a judicial sense that when Jesus comes back, the judge of the world, He will find us without spot, without blemish. And Peter's borrowing Old Testament language from the sacrifice of, of the animals in the temple. They had to be without spot and without blemish. They, they had to be fit, not unfit, useful, not useless. Uh, an animal that had a spot couldn't be used for sacrifice. It had to be pure. Because God's calling to us to be pure. A man who was a priest couldn't go in if he had a blemish on his skin. God teaching us and showing us with visual, visual uh, things that, that the importance of being pure, of which we could never attain apart from Jesus Christ. Peter's point is clear. Motivated by the day of the Lord that is coming, believers should work hard to be found pure and blameless, useful and fit when Christ comes back. It's a goal. We'll never reach that condition in this life. But we ought to strive. We ought to confess our sins. We ought to, to work and struggle with sin until the day we are completely redeemed. We need to work at it. It's imperative that we live life. And if we're ready for the coming of the Lord, if we really believe this truth, our lives will change today. Philippians 2. My beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but in my absence, Work out your salvation. Not work it in, work it out with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. He's the energizing power both to will and to work of His good pleasure. So the question begs us, what are we doing to strive, to work, to, to make every effort to live lives of godliness and holiness, uh, of being spotless and being blemishless? What are we doing? Are we progressing in our walk with God? Are we confessing and, and regularly repenting of our sins? Where are your priorities? This is a word for me, folks. Are, are we prioritizing Scripture reading? Are we prioritizing community? If, 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 if God were to come and see your, your time schedule on your phone and see your, your, your debit schedule in your giving and see what you're doing, where would He say your priorities would be? I'm not answering that for you. I have to answer it for my own self. So you answer that question and let the Spirit of God show you. The deception. Two more imperatives. Verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's an imperative. That's commands and instruction. Count the patience of the Lord. Uh, the NIV has bear in mind. 
And then verse 17, uh, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care. The NIV has be on your guard. It means to watch over something, to keep something. So the imperatives about this deception that's going on, one has to do with our salvation, that we ought to be patient with it, and one has to do with the Scriptures. We already talked about the Scriptures, how important it is. And I, and I think what Peter is saying in verse 15, concerning our salvation and the patience of the Lord, this is going back to verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise. We're talking about patience. As some count slowness, He's not impotent. He's not uncaring. But His patience towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the thought is that we need to bear in mind, we need to remember, we need to regard the patience of the Lord and how we receive our salvation. I think Peter's writing not only to the Christians who are, who are walking closely with Jesus, but in the context, Peter's concerned, if you remember, he's concerned about Christians, not the false teachers per se, he's concerned about the Christians in the church that were being um, enticed, he says, that were being led astray. And he's saying, listen, God is patient for you in your salvation. When Peter talks about salvation, when the Bible talks about salvation, it uses um, different terminologies or at least time frames. The Bible talks about our salvation being of the past, even before the foundations of the world. Peter used it in his own letter. He said that we are the elect, we are the chosen race according to the foreknowledge of God before time began. Then our salvation is spoken about the day that you and I said yes to Jesus. Peter talks about the call, the one who called you to his glory and his excellence. To be more diligent to confirm your calling and election. There's a a day when the God opens our hearts, our minds, and we see the glory of Christ. We see our sin and we turn to Jesus. From eternity past to the day that it takes place. But the Bible talks about the sanctifying work of salvation. That we're being transformed. Formed into the image of the Son. Paul, Peter writes, we're partakers of His divine nature. That we are heir to our faith. Virtues. So we look more like Jesus. Then, the final process of our salvation is what he's talking about. The glorification of the saints. The day in which the Bible says that we, we have been born again to a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus. That our salvation is imperishable and unfading kept by the power of God to be revealed in the last days. There's a sense in which we were saved eternity past, the day we received Christ, the life we live, the sanctifying process, and the day that Christ will come and our whole bodies would, everything will be redeemed. And what Peter is saying, listen, God's patience toward you, so you can understand all that. Paul wrote in Romans, I love this verse, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, Conformed to the image of His Son. He foreknew you, He predestined you to be conformed, to look like Jesus, in order that we might be the firstborn among the brothers. And those He predestined, He called. The calling of God. Those He called, He justified. We made right before God. Those He justified, He will glorify. That's the, the transforming power of God when all sin will be removed. All injustices of the earth will be done. No more sin, no more cancer, no more injustice, no more hatred, no more racism. And I think Peter's saying, God's patient to you. Listen, church, and for you here, listen, God is patient toward you, revealing His entire plan of salvation so that you won't give up. The whole letter is about perseverance, persevering in trials, persevering in hardships in First Peter. 
Persevering in, in, in persecution. We looked at that. Perseverance in Second Peter about against heretics and false teachers. Perseverance in holiness and godly conduct. Perseverance is a mark of someone who's been genuinely born again. And he says, God is patient. Know this. Persevere on. Stretch on. Move on. Make every effort. Keep walking. That's what he's saying. And I love what he says in verse 16. Well, part of verse 15. Just like our beloved Paul wrote to you in the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their destruction as they do the other scriptures. So if you're reading your Bible and you go, I, I have no idea what that says. You're in good company. Peter, the apostle, didn't know what Paul was writing. So if you read some of the things you're Paul, you're going, I have not a clue. I, how, I, 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 I don't know. Like, well, Peter went, what's Paul saying? What the? You know, like, can we get this guy on the phone? I don't even know what he's talking about. Right? That's what he's saying. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. And not all Scripture is understandable. Right? But listen, look what he said. Look at the last five words. One, two, three, four, five, six words. As they do, I want you to underline this, as they do in all, do in the other Scriptures. You hear what he's saying? He's saying Paul's letters are being circulated and gathered like the Scriptures. Like all the other Scriptures in the Old Testament. He's saying... The letters that Paul is writing is also considered inspired by God. That the product of, it's the product of God's Spirit moving Paul along, being carried along, Peter, he says in chapter 1, verse 2. So that Paul wrote that in which God wanted him to write, word for word. Inerrancy, infallibility of Scripture. It says that Paul's letters were actually authoritative as well. All in that one phrase. All in that one phrase. You, the other Scriptures... Paul's letters that we're gathering, the false teachers were taking and distorting as they did the Old Testament. They're, they're in line with, they're already circling, they're already talking about the Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures right here. And, and he's trying to convince them that, you listen, the, 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 the heretics, the false teachers were, were not believing the promises of God, they were not believing the Word of God, and they're not believing Paul either. And me for that matter. All of Scripture. Folks, we have spoken about this before, but Albany, Schenectady, and Troy, number one city, Bible illiterate. Family of God, if there's ever a time and a season and a, and a historical place that you and I need to know our Scripture, it is now. It is now. For your sake, for your children's sake, for the next generation's sake, one of my goals as your pastor, as one of your pastors, is to demonstrate the importance of the Word of God in this church. I, we've been knocked for it. Oh yeah, they take the Bible seriously over there. I'm like, thanks. Appreciate that. We do. We actually do. We don't come under the Scripture. Scripture comes over us. That's the way we look at the Bible. And it's one of my, well, one of my, one of my passions is that if for some reason you have to move away or if for some reason you're in a, in a conference... And there's someone claiming to be a minister of the gospel, and they're and they're they're, they're they have a you know half-hearted uh, uh, pursuit of scripture, and they treat it haphazardly and pulling verses out of context, using it for their own greedy gain, or worse, just leaving it aside and saying, "Let me tell you what God told me," and not the scripture. I hope my prayer is that something inside of you goes, "Something's wrong. Something's wrong." 
You know, he's just quoting stuff. I don't know what he's talking about. He's all over the place. He's pulling Scripture out of, you know, all different places. And something's not right. Two minutes in the Word and the rest 55 minutes on what the Spirit's going to do and what God told him. I hope, I hope my prayer is that if you ever leave here or go, like I said, go to some other place, you're like, nope. Exposition of Scripture. What does the Bible say? How can I regularly and appropriately apply it to my life? Family, that's where you need to be. And you need to examine, as the Bereans did with Paul. Examine me. Examine anyone that sits up in this, stands up here and preaches the Word of God. He says there are those that, that will take that in which is hard to understand and twist it. It's one thing not to understand. It's another thing to twist it. Twisting it. Deceiving people. I'm convinced that expository teaching is the way to go. That's just my conviction. And I, I, it would be hard to change that. It helps us to, to not ignore passages of Scripture. What you'll find, and I don't want to get too much on a bunny travel, what you'll find in some of these teachers, if you watch them regularly, they're talking about the same thing every week. Money, wealth, fame, using your faith to get what you want. I mean, that's every single day, week in, week out. They have no idea what the rest of the Bible has to say or put anything in scriptural context. Stay away from them. Stay away from them. Use God's Word. Use the whole counsel of God's Word and the proper interpretation of God's Word. He's saying, listen, there's a lot going on. False teachers will say certain things. You have the Word of God. Stand firm on it. And finally... Verse 18, the determination, another imperative. But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that Peter ends his letter not saying grow in the knowledge of Jesus. I love it that he balances grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8 says that knowledge puffs you up or makes you arrogant, but love edifies. Peter said this balance. In the Gospel according to John, the Bible said that Jesus came in grace and truth. Here's the thing you need to see. When Peter says grow in the grace and knowledge, he's writing it because he believes they possess grace. Peter wrote early in the first chapter that they were partakers of the divine nature. The DNA of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. He's dwelling within you. You know grace because He lives in me. And because He lives in me, He lives in you, you can grow in that grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago we talked about, I think it's really important, the difference between organic growth and mechanical growth. Mechanical growth is growing like a junkyard, you're adding more cars. Organic growth is that which grows from the inside out like a tree, leaves and branches. Huge difference between the two. And as I look at this passage, I think growing externally by adding knowledge without grace is growing mechanically, not organically, from the inside out. God's grace, unmerited favor, if you don't know, grace means unmerited favor, is many times in Scripture talked about a one-time event. When you think of God's grace, a lot of people think God's grace at salvation. I'm a sinner, I'm desperately wicked, I deserve hell, damnation, and God has in His grace, unmerited in anything I've done or said, because I'm a sinner, He saved me by not my own good, but His goodness, right? That's grace, unmerited favor. But the Bible talks about grace not only as a one-time event, justification, I've been justified, I've been made right with God by His grace, 
not only talks about that as a one-time event, or even adoption. I've been adopted by God. I'm now His child. Justification, adoption, by His grace. But it talks about grace being the power to grow in your life. The power to grow as a Christian. Peter says, grow in the grace. Advance and grow. Hebrews tells us that when we are to draw to the, come to the throne of grace and what? Receive mercy and find grace. That's more grace to help us in our time of need. So how do we grow in grace? How do we organically grow in the one-time event that God has justified us? We've been made right with God. Our sins are forgiven. He adopted us into His family. We're now His children. How do we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know what I'm going to say. It's the gospel. See, you can't be more justified. You can't be more adopted. But you can press and drive home deeper those truths into your heart and into your life. And when that happens, we grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. Let me show you how it works. You see someone down and out. Strung out, whatever it is. Having a hard time. Strung out on drug and alcohol. Absolute mess. And your first thought is they should get their life in order like me. They shouldn't allow drugs and alcohol to wreck their lives, their destructive habits. They should learn to read the Bible, to go to church. And all those things are true. That's knowledge, but it's not grace. Growing in grace and knowledge looks at that person and says, but for the grace of God, there goes I. Someone has hurt you, sinned against you, harmed you deeply. And you muster up enough energy, you're like, I, I, I know my Bible, I'm supposed to forgive that person. And by your own strength, you say, you know what, I forgive you. That's knowledge. When you look at your life and you think, I have so much sin, that doesn't even compare to what they did to me, piled up, piled up, piled up, piled up, and God has graciously forgiven me of all my sin, I need to go now and extend that forgiveness. That's grace. When you have an attitude of inferiority, Inferiority, God can't use me. God, I'm no good. We're reminded of God's grace and His love and His full acceptance of us in Christ. We are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. He delights in us. It doesn't get any better than that. And when you have an attitude of superiority, look at me. We're reminded of God's grace and love for us on the cross. That Jesus had to die for our sins because I am so wicked. It's about grace of the gospel. How can I hate other people? If you find yourself hating others and you're thinking, you know what, it's not good. It's not right that I hate that person. That's knowledge. If you look at that person and you say, you know what, I've got, I've got some serious issues. I hate that person. You think, you know what, I was a hater of God. I was a rebel of God. I was an enemy of God. But yet God wooed me, loved me, sought me, and brought me into relationship with Him of no work of my own. That's grown in grace and knowledge. When you look at a certain culture, a certain race, and you think, oh man, I'm glad I'm not. What? We were alienated from God. He saves all people's nations, tribes, and tongues by His grace. See, that's the difference between growing in knowledge and in grace. Grace is looking at the gospel and recognizing our dependency, moment by moment, our dependency on the grace of God in Christ in every area of our lives. Grow in grace, he says. Grow, grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then his final analysis, he says, to him, to Jesus be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And Peter points us 
to Jesus. To love Him. To treasure Him. To run to Him. To lean on Him. To trust Him. To show the world that Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's enough today. He'll be enough tomorrow. He'll be enough in eternity. His grace is sufficient for me. Power is made perfect in weakness. I will boast. All the more boast in my infirmities so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Peter has a lot to say. Are you making every effort? Are the things that God is speaking to you, you know, I need to make some adjustments in my life. Determined to do that. By grace. Not to pat yourself on the back or to check it off your list. Not because you have to, but because you get to. He loves you. He loves you. Be in the Word. Again, not because you have to, because you get to. Know the truth. And when falsehood comes, you'll know. Let's bow our heads in prayer. As the band comes up, come on up, Ben. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word in First and Second Peter. We've learned much. Father, I heard it once say that hard word, soft words produce hard people. And sometimes hard words needed to produce soft people. We want to be a soft people. We want to be a humble people. We want to be a people of grace and of mercy. We want to be a people who, who are dependent upon the gospel. That the gospel is living its life in us. That Jesus Christ is glorified through us. That you get glory, we get joy. That together, Father, we're not going to point fingers. We're going to look to Jesus. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to set our lives on a course to bring you glory and to bring you honor. To live a life that's pleasing to you. Not to work toward your love, but because you love us, we will do your will. Father, thank you for the cross. May the gospel be the way in which we grow in every area of our life. And I want to pray right now for someone here, folks, who if you don't know Jesus, turn to Jesus. Trust Him today. This judgment of God will come. Jesus will return. And His patience toward you is not to show you or anything that He's impotent, but that He will come but that He wants you to turn. Repent from your sins. Turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Love Jesus. And lay your life down at His feet. And Father, for Your people, help us to reevaluate and reorient our heart around the Gospel. That we may serve You and love You and treasure You above all things, we pray. As we respond in prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.